breaking news. The uh, head of the Smithsonian has a very expensive Van Gogh painting, but it is stored safely in his garage next to his Corvette. Ooh. I was kind of nervous there for a little bit. Yeah, I thought maybe somebody would, somebody might break into the garage. No, 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 it's safe there. You know, it, 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 there is, uh, you know, uh, you could keep it in uh, the White House uh, with 24-hour security. Uh, you could uh, keep it with the archives people. Uh, but when you can store it in the garage, yeah, you know it's safe. Well, you know, he takes classified materials seriously, so. Yeah, yeah. Say, you know what I was missing, uh, Brian, is that photograph of the classified files splayed out on the floor. Uh-huh. Yeah, you I know? didn't see that either. I, I missed that. <laughs> Somehow, I, I missed that. Uh, but on, on the upside, on the upside, the timing, whew, boy, you talk about luck. Uh, can you imagine if the Justice Department had leaked this out before the midterm elections? That, you know, it might have had an impact on those elections, but they got so lucky. Uh, nobody leaked until after the midterms. I'm impressed. I, oh, this guy is just, you know, Biden. So dependable. It's a good the thing garage. he's in charge. You know, I mean. Yeah, yeah. The garage? Yeah. That's, really? That's where you store, you know, important things. <laughs> Oh, you can't make this stuff up. Would you like to hear the audio of that exchange between Ducey and Yeah, that and was Biden? really good. Yeah, let's yeah. play that. Mr. President, Mr. President, okay. classified, classified material next to your Corvette. What were you thinking? Let me, uh, look, I'm going to get a chance to speak on all this, God willing, soon. But as I said earlier this week, people, and by the way, my Corvette's in a lock garage. Okay, so it's not like you're sitting out in the street. So the but street anyway, was in a garage. yes, as well as my Corvette. Um, but uh, as I said oh, earlier this on, week, hold it, hold it, hold it. He keeps bringing up his car. Well, that's not but, important. It's all. It, it strikes me that it's more important to him that his <laughs> Corvette was in a locked garage than the top secret documents. I think the point, now, I'm trying to think like Biden probably oh, that, is thinking. If you can do that, you're very fired. difficult. But in his mind, he said he's thinking to himself that, hey, this Corvette is worth a lot of money. So I have it locked in my garage so no one can get to it. And the classified documents were right there, too. So it's completely safe. Yeah. I, uh, I, I'm thinking that's all right, what let's, he's thinking. Let's, Let's finish it up because obviously Biden can't walk away from this. He has to answer Ducey. I documents and classified material seriously. I also said we're cooperating fully and completely with the Justice Department's review. As part of that process, my lawyers reviewed other places where documents in my, uh, of, from my time as vice president were stored and they finished the review last night. They discovered a small number of documents of classified markings and storage areas in file cabinets in my home and my in my 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 personal library. Well, so do you feel better now? Uh, no, I I I, <laughs> I don't. Unbelievable. Eight seven four ninety three ninety eight hundred five two nine five five seven two. Where do you store your valuables? Where do you put the most expensive things you own? Where do you put the things that are, 
you know, where would you store something that is, you know, of, of uh, national importance? A garage? I, I, can, I still I don't really know the answer to this question. Why does a vice president have the authority to retain classified documents anyway? I don't know. I'm sure he's he's got clearance to read classified documents. Yeah. Maybe the Obamunist came over to visit and brought gave him permission. Yeah, yeah. That's what we need. Barack Obama to come out and say, well, listen, everything is okay. I declassified those documents. <laughs> <laughs> and then Donald Trump laughs all the way to the... All right. Let me go to the phones here. Roger is on the line. Roger, welcome. Glad to have you on the Gary Nolan Show. Right, Juliet. Uh, basically, <laughs> he gives you a, a grocery bag, and for as many um, classified documents as you can stuff into that grocery bag, it's only five hundred yuan. Yeah, <laughs> you know. And what about uh, the uh, the Clinton uh, guy who who stuffed the top secret documents in his sock? Sandy Berger. Sandy Berger uh, walked away with a slap on the wrist. Yep, and Biden will too. I can guarantee it. Donald Trump. 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 They're going to have a hard time going after Trump now. Oh yeah, but they'll still do it. They'll try. You think so? Sure, they will. They'll say they'll never give up. There's no rules for Democrats. Yeah, they'll they'll say, uh, yeah, he didn't come forward, and and uh, he he was not honest about it, but. But Joe Biden was, so we'll look the other way. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to look ugly politically. It really is. All right, Roger. Thank you. Okay, thanks. I'm glad to have you on the Gary Nolan Show. I don't know how you make that sale. I, I really don't. Um, I don't know that I want McCarthy investigating this, though. I don't think I want the Republicans investigating this. I want the Justice Department to have to make decisions on both of these trials or both of these investigations, rather, and then uh, try and justify it in the public eye. Uh, Congress, not so much. Oh, yeah, and I'll tell you what's going to happen in Congress. It's uh, it's going to be, uh, gee, you can't have access to this information or that information uh, because we've got an ongoing Justice Department investigation. And so it'll be haphazard and not particularly good. Let Let the Justice Department handle it. And, and and don't be terribly disappointed, every one of you who's listening to me now, don't be horribly disappointed if the Democrat just walks away clean. I mean, we're used to it now. It's, it's the way, it's the way the world works. If you're a Democrat, you're immune. If you're a Democrat and you lie, it's okay. If you're a Democrat and you cheat, it's okay. If you're a Republican and you do those things, it's a whole different ballgame. Just get used to it. Uh, da, 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 da. Okay, so uh, we've got Dave Rowland coming up. He'll be with us in a few minutes. Uh, and I got a message here from Kim. With the weight of electric vehicles uh, being so much more than gas vehicles, what effect will that have on bridges uh, if and when cars are electric? It really probably won't have an effect in, in terms of, gee, the bridge will collapse because there's so many cars stuck on it. Because they're used to carrying tractor trailers and they're loaded with, uh, a, you know, a lot of uh, weight. But in the long run, extra heavy vehicles 
driving on uh, highways will wear out the highways. Uh, it, it's it's uh, it's the friction between the tire and the and the pavement that you'll see. Uh, it, it, the highways won't last as long. They'll need repaved more often. They're just so stupid. I, I can't. I just cannot imagine why they keep pushing these battery-powered cars. They're not good for the climate. They're not good for the highway. Uh, I don't know. By the way, they are coming out with an E-Vet. An E-Corvette. The C8 Corvette. They're coming out rear-engine front motors. So it'll be the first all-wheel drive Corvette. It'll be a hybrid That'll be interesting. All right, up against the clock. Dave Rowland is next. Gary Nolan, Zimmer, Radio Network. It is uh, 11.19, and Dave Rowland is in the building. Uh, but uh, before we go to Dave, uh, Brian, who's this? Leah? Is that right? Leah or Lee? Lee. Lee, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm, well, I'm fine. Thank you, Gary. So you have something to say about Dave Rowland? Well, I just wasn't sure if you were aware that Dave is quite an accomplished singer and will be part of the cast next week at the Presser Arts Center Gala in Mexico. Yeah, does Dave know that I'm quite a vocalist, too? Uh, I'm not sure how well he knows you. <laughs> you know, nobody even cares, really. <laughs> I'm sorry you weren't invited, Gary. No, that's okay. Just tell me, uh, when is this uh, going to air? Where is it going to air? What time, in case anybody wants to see the bald-headed, baggy-eyed guy sing? Well, actually, it's a, it's a sold-out event at the Presser Performing Arts Center in Mexico next Saturday, the 21st. So it's already sold out? Yes. I can't even go there and, and uh, heckle him. No, sorry. But they are going to video it this time, which is the first time it's been recorded, as I understand it. Oh, uh, so I'm going to want yeah, some of that. you can watch that way. Yeah. All right. Leah, thank, thank you. you. All right, take sure. care. Glad to have you on the Gary Nolan Show. Uh, so, uh, baritone, bass, where are, you, where are you? I'm figuring you're a baritone. Tenor. I, I, I'm a very, I have a very high and delicate singing voice, Gary. Very high and delicate singing voice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know the old joke. Uh, tenor, yeah, yeah, sing ten or twelve miles away. That uh, I think I remember hearing that. Um, uh huh. Did you take vocal lessons? I did when I was younger. Um, lived in a, a community that had a thriving performing arts scene and uh, had a wonderful vocal instructor when I was young. And um, yeah, stuck with it through college. And then uh, I've, I've kind of informally continued to, to lead worship services for the churches that I've attended and that sort of thing. Neat. That's, that's pretty good. All right. Uh, we got a lot of ground to cover. You have come up with a ton of topics. So, you know, strap in and let's get going. Uh, I want to start this off with the uh, Katie Gatewood impeachment case. You argue this uh, before the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals on Thursday. Uh, didn't go so well. Went went okay. What? Uh, well, it was a weird argument, Gary. So listeners may recall this is the situation where the city of O'Fallon decided that they were going to impeach one of their city council members. And it turned into kind of a kangaroo court because three of the city council members 
announced well in advance of any hearing um, that they believed she was guilty as charged. Well, that's one of the things that the Due Process Clause of the U.S. Constitution prohibits. You cannot allow someone who has already decided um, the facts or the law of a case to then sit in judgment of that case. And we pointed this out. Um, but they went ahead and they, they sat on this case anyway and reached their uh, predestined conclusion that they were going to remove her from office. We went to federal court. The federal judge said she wasn't going to interfere. She was just going to let the state tribunal go forward with whatever they wanted to do. And we appealed that to the Eighth Circuit. Um, the argument was really strange because there were three federal judges on the panel, and one of them insisted that... Uh, neither party understood our own case. Uh, so we had spent months preparing the written arguments, the briefs that are submitted to the Court of Appeals, and uh, the attorneys on each side identified all the cases that we thought were really relevant to the, the, the facts of our situation, the legal issues that we were raising. And this judge found this U.S. Supreme Court case from 1974 that he thought applied and then decided to ask us about it. Not just not just ask about it. He insisted that that was the only proper way of framing our case and uh, wouldn't even listen when I was trying to explain um, why we cited the cases that we did. This is a highly unusual situation, Gary. It's the kind of thing you hear about in law school uh, but very rarely see in real life, um, it's the first time I've seen anything quite like it in, in my almost 20 years litigating these kinds of cases. Now, the important thing is, is as soon as I got home from this argument, I looked up the case he was talking about, and I actually don't think it applies. I, it, it, it is certainly not nearly as close a fit as the cases we actually did cite. Uh, and so I am hopeful that even if this one judge is really hung up on his own particular theory of the case, I'm hopeful that the other two judges will decide it based on the cases that the parties actually referenced and argued. Um, that is very possible. You know, it's part of the reason that you have three judges on an appellate panel. Um, so, so I am hopeful that the other two judges are going to do the right thing. But I honestly couldn't get a, a bead on where, where the other judges were coming from because they never got a word in edgewise. This, this one judge dominated uh, the time. I, I was given 10 minutes to argue the case, and he spent at least seven and a half of my minutes talking and every time i tried to tried to respond and explain he would interrupt and go back to his theory of the case it was a very strange situation but uh we're probably going to find out the outcome of that case in about three to five months and uh, i am hopeful that we're going to prevail in spite of how the argument went but even if we don't i think we'll have a really good basis for a rehearing um, and we've talked before about how sometimes if the original three-judge panel gets it wrong, you can ask the entire panel to review it. And uh, that may be what we're headed for, but but we'll see. I had uh, I saw this uh, case on uh, at Reason Magazine, and I thought it was fascinating. And I know that you didn't plan on talking about this. I'm just curious about sure. your opinion of this. Uh, the story is this. Back in 1995, Brian Range pleaded guilty to fraudulently obtaining $2,458 in food stamps by misrepresenting his income. He returned the money, he paid a $100 fine, 
and $288 in court costs, and then served three years of probation. He didn't realize it, but apparently uh, that Pennsylvania misdemeanor conviction came along, writes Reason Magazine, with a lifelong penalty. He lost his yeah. constitutional right to keep and bear arms. Uh, the case, which the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit is going to hear next month, poses a question of whether that policy, which prohibits gun ownership by millions of Americans with no history of violence, violates the Second Amendment. Where do you stand on that? Oh, I, I think that the citizen is absolutely correct here, and uh, I, I am hopeful that they're going to win. So we actually litigated something very much like this in Missouri um, with Missouri's felon in possession statute. Uh, after Missourians approved the um, amendment to our Constitution that was designed to strengthen the right to keep and bear arms, uh, the question was how it was going to be applied. And uh, the gentleman on whose behalf we argued uh, was a young man who grew up in St. Louis City, a rough part of town, and he had never been in any trouble with the law. He was working two jobs. He had a steady relationship. But because of the area that he lived and worked, he carried a, a handgun in his car for self-protection. And the only trouble he ever had with the law is when he got pulled over um, for a traffic infraction, and he did what his mama told him and acknowledged that he had a, a firearm in the hand uh, in the uh, in the car, and they charged him with a felony for not having a concealed carry permit. He was 17 at the time. And then later he got stopped for a similar, he, for rolling through a stop sign. And when he acknowledged having a handgun in his car at that time, he was a felon in possession. And so we were arguing that under Missouri's new constitutional protections, you can't penalize someone whose only offense is carrying a handgun for self-defense. Self, self um, and we pointed out that there are all kinds of nonviolent felonies out there. It's an ever-expanding list of nonviolent felonies. And it's absurd to suggest that someone should lose a fundamental constitutional right for doing something that is completely nonviolent, including perhaps welfare fraud. Um, and the, the Missouri Supreme Court disagreed with us. We got two judges. Uh, to go in our favor. The other five disagreed. But I think that now that the U.S. Supreme Court has clarified the proper analysis under the Second Amendment, um, I think there's a very strong possibility that um, a lot of these felon in possession laws are going to be struck down. Historically, the kinds of felonies they're concerned about are what are called common law felonies, like uh, rape or murder or uh, burglary, burglary, things like that. Common law felonies that involve violence against another person. If we're not talking about a violent act, there's simply no justification for depriving someone of their right of self-defense. Yeah, I find it hard to understand how, you know, a nonviolent person or someone who's, uh, you know, not demonstrated any uh, proclivity for that would, would have to be more vulnerable uh, than uh, you or me. Uh, doesn't, it doesn't really make sense. Uh, there's another story at Reason Magazine about navigable water, and I listened to Gorsuch, and God, he impresses me. <laughs> this guy really does. Uh, about how, you know, whether or not... Uh, the government should be regulating water that's not navigable, frankly. Uh, I, I'll do a real brief on this, and then we'll go back and, and hit some of the other stuff that you brought on board. Dave Rowland with us. GoFreedom.org.
This is the Gary Nolan Show. It is 11.35, and I've thrown uh, Dave Rowland uh, two curveballs. Second one is coming up. Uh, but then we're going to get back on track. Piece at Reason Magazine. I played part of the audio yesterday. The Supreme Court could uh, upend the Clean Water Act. This guy bought a piece of property uh, not too far from a lake, uh, but it's got a highway between him and a lake, and it's a part of a subdivision, and he wanted to build a home. And the government came in and said, no, you can't do that. They said there was, you know, a puddle here, and it's... Uh, part of the uh, the Clean Water Act, and it's uh, because it's adjacent to the body of water. Uh, and uh, in the midst of this, uh, we've got uh, the audio of the the Supreme Court talking to this uh, uh, attorney for the federal government, and it's 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 Gorsuch here, a guy who I really admire, uh, and he makes a point that is so valid. I, I don't understand. I don't know how this it doesn't get overturned. Listen to this. They point to the Clean Water Act's authorization to regulate land adjacent to protected water. But how far does adjacency extend? That question was raised by Justice Neil Gorsuch in oral arguments. Despite the fact that there's a subdivision between this property and the lake, it's still adjacent to the lake. That's the government's view. That And it's adjacent why? What's the definition of adjacency? I think we are talking about adjacency, and that may not be something that gives you bright line rules, but it rules out things that are many miles away. Sure the EPA would take that view? And the agencies have told me they do not draw bright line rules. They do not think 300 feet is unreasonable for adjacency. So how about 3,000 feet? I, could I, be? I, I don't know the answer to that, Justice Could it Gorsuch. be three miles? I, I don't think it could be. Could it be two miles? That, again, when we start to talk about miles, that sounds too far to be a to be one mile approximate to me. Again, I, I see where this is headed, but but again, I think <laughs> so. If the federal government doesn't know, how is a person subject to criminal time in federal prison supposed to know? So the agencies, in recognition of this problem, make available free of charge jurisdictional determinations as to any property. They also publicize their manuals and make available on websites every jurisdiction. Their manuals that don't tell us the answer. There's no doubt that... I don't know. Of course, it's just... I don't know. It's just something about this guy I like. Uh, But his point's well made. Yeah, Gorsuch is fantastic. He is... Um, for my money, he's he's the best justice on the Supreme Court right now, um, and and yeah, his his point is absolutely well made. Um, this case, by the way, has been going on for I want to say in the neighborhood of sixteen years now. Yes, yeah, the second um, trip to the Supreme Court. Yeah, it's just been this Kafka esque journey for the Sackett family when all they wanted to do was just build a home. You know, in an established subdivision, and and then they've been forced to fight for all this time. They're represented, by the way, by Pacific Legal Foundation, which was one of the very first um, kind of libertarian, conservative, uh, public interest law firms that kind of set the model for what the Freedom Center of Missouri is trying to do here. Uh, and they have fought this battle uh, extremely well. They got that very important Supreme Court win back in 2012, I believe. Um, and now again, they've, they've gotten back in front of the U.S. Supreme Court on this issue. And I anticipate a positive outcome here. Um, the government should not and cannot be allowed to, um, regulate just anything in the name of wetlands protection. And this is a, a clear example, I believe of the government overstepping its bounds, and because the Sacketts have stayed the course, 
um, I have high hopes that we're going to see the Supreme Court rein in the authority of the EPA when it comes to this kind of regulation. I can't wait to see these federal agencies um, with their heels locked up and uh, the power uh, that they've been granted, I think, illegally taken away. Uh, let's move on because you got a bunch of great topics here that I, I do want to get to, including uh, recent examples on MU's uh, campus bring up questions of free speech. What gives? Well, uh, you know, we actually, there was a, uh, a lead story at the, on the 6 o'clock news on ABC 17 this, uh, a couple days ago in Columbia where we talked about this. And um, some people are very frustrated with the way that others have chosen to use their freedom of expression. Um, you had a situation where um, a, a somebody, it's not clear who, put up flyers with uh, a thinly veiled white supremacist message uh, on some places on campus. There was a student who, in a Snapchat message to another individual, um, made a joke that involved the use of a racial slur and highly insensitive language. Um, those are, are the most provocative situations. As a matter of fact, the Kansas City Star published an editorial yesterday in which the editorial board effectively demanded that the university take action, disciplinary action against this student who uh, sent this private Snapchat message. And and it's just insane, Gary, that, that people are willing to sacrifice the freedom of expression uh, when someone uses it in a way that is offensive um, and and provocative, but not directly harmful. Um, and, and so, in this interview that I did with the with the news station, I explained that the courts have found some exceptions to the freedom of expression. So you're not allowed to make a true threat. In other words, to to tell somebody that you are planning to inflict harm on them or you're going to cause harm to come to them in some way. That's a true threat that's not protected by the First Amendment. And also fighting words, words that are intended to provoke an immediate violent response are uh, not protected by the First Amendment. But the statements we're talking about were neither of those. So someone posting a flyer, however offensive it might be, saying, you know, don't let minorities replace us, uh, or somebody using a, a slur in a private communication that didn't actually threaten any particular person. You know, these are unfortunate things for people to say. I disagree with them wholeheartedly. But if we're going to secure freedom for ourselves, we have got to secure freedom for other people. And, and that's what so many folks on the progressive side of the political spectrum have completely lost sight of. And it's bizarre, Gary, because that side of the political spectrum used to be the driving force for freedom of expression. You look back in the 60s and the 70s, and it was the left-leaning groups that were going out of their way to make sure that freedom of speech was protected because they understood the implications of allowing the penalization of speech that some people found offensive. Um, and, and somehow along the way, a number of these groups have lost that lesson. And it it's dangerous. It is 
affirmatively dangerous to our way of life, to our constitutional system of government, for people to ignore the, the right of others to engage in communications that might be offensive as long as they are not actively harmful to a specific person. I don't know. Uh, all this hypersensitivity about words. Uh, we were talking earlier that uh, they're, they're now saying that the word field is racist and two universities are banning it. You you play the field or you're going out to the field or you're working in the field. Uh, I can't even keep up with it. Um, and regulating it. I mean, these are in many cases, they're going after words. People don't even know they're that they've been offended. They don't even know it's offensive. Uh, I don't right. Know. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It's uh, the the landscape for the language police is shifting so rapidly um, that it's it's almost impossible for an ordinary person who's just trying to live a normal life to keep up with it. I mean, this is this is the field where academics excel in spinning their wheels about whether certain words or ideas might conceivably be considered to be offensive. But when you get into the actual real world. Um, Nobody legitimately thinks that they're offensive. Um, the fact that we we talk about people owning a sports franchise um, when they, in fact, are the people who paid the money for it, they're responsible for the management of a sports franchise, but all of a sudden you can't call them owners because that somehow evokes slave ownership. It's just a bizarre stretch of the imagination. And a very small handful of people who are very vocal on Twitter have latched on to these ideas, but they just have no relevance to the real world. And and I think that um, really maybe the best thing is just to ignore some of this because uh, Twitter is not real life. And, and I think that some people have correctly recognized that if we just stop giving a platform or stop, stop giving credence to some of the caterwauling from, uh, from these corners. Um, maybe, maybe we'll all be happier, you know, yeah, you if gotta, we just ignore them. Yeah. You got to tell the universities not to bend over and play the game. Uh, we got two more cases. Fortunately, Mizzou has stood up on the right side of these issues uh, recently. And so that's, that's a good thing. I Mizzou agree. has done the right thing in these most recent incidences. All right, I got two cases left. I want to get to both of them, and I'm going to have less than 10 minutes to do it. Geico off the hook, uh, a woman who got STD in a car that was insured by Geico. <laughs> I remember this case. Uh, and John Deere uh, and farmers fixing their own tractors. If we can get through those, well, I'll be a happy camper. Gary Nolan, Zimmer Radio Network. It is uh, 11.51. Dave Roland, MoFreedom.org. Will, he will represent you in court uh, without any charge uh, if the government's trying to take away your rights. Uh, but it, of course, relies on donations. Uh, so if you go to MoFreedom.org slash donate, I'd appreciate it. You might one day need him. and You'll be happy he can do it. Uh, but we've got uh, two cases uh, that are, well, I think we have to cover them. Geico off the hook in $5 million payout to woman who got an STD in the car. Briefly. Yeah. <laughs> so listeners may recall hearing about this a few months ago because the uh, Missouri Court of Appeals upheld uh, a circuit court decision that said Geico got into the case too late 
to change the outcome. Um, there is a statute on the books that allows an insurer to intervene in a case involving one of its insureds, um, but the judges said that does not mean that they get to start over from the beginning. They said you have to take the case where you find it at the time that you intervene. And because in this situation, um, Geico did not intervene until after all of the basic facts had already been established, that's how they got uh, stuck on the hook for this $5.2 million judgment. The Missouri Supreme Court jumped in, took the case. They said, we're going to reconsider this. And this week, they reversed it. They changed the, the outcome. Now, here is the interesting thing, Gary, and I'm going out on a limb by saying this. <laughs> I can imagine. I think the Court of Appeals had the correct analysis. So wow. the Court of Appeals specified that for years it has been understood that when you intervene in a case, you take the case as you find it at the point that you intervene. You don't get the do-over. And the Missouri Supreme Court did not address that at all. It was a three-page opinion, unanimous opinion, and they simply do not address this long-standing rule regarding this statute. All they say is, well, Geico should have had a chance to intervene earlier and therefore send it back. Let them, let them go forward with it. So, you know, um, it, sometimes this kind of things happen where, where, you know, the Missouri Supreme court makes a decision that I think maybe they got it wrong. Uh, but they're the ones who sit there, not me. Uh, but one way or another, Geico gets a, gets a, a, a redo. Uh, they, they get to hit a reset button on the litigation here, and maybe they'll be able to avoid this liability at this point. What a strange hey, case. I wanted, to, I wanted to jump in real quick, uh, Gary, because we have not had a chance to speak since the end of last year. And there was another case, the Freedom Center one, that I thought um, it might be helpful to, to tell the listeners about. Can we jump to that one? Yep, go ahead. Yeah, so um, we have talked before about our most recent case against the Missouri Ethics Commission, where the Ethics Commission had fined uh, a Wildwood City Council member for failing to report the value of a truck uh, on which he had put a bumper sticker. Now, lots of people, when they do something exciting, like running for public office, they'll put up some kind of a sign on their vehicle, like people who get married. They put the just married uh, sign on their car. When uh, people graduate from school or, or if they're football players getting ready to go to the playoffs, they might have messages put on their vehicles just to let people know these are things that are happening for them. Uh, so this guy, while he was running for office, put up a couple of signs in the back of uh, his, his work truck, which he it's his normal running around everyday truck. And uh, Two years after the fact, two years after the election was over, his opponent files a complaint with the Ethics Commission and says, well, he should have reported the value of the truck as a campaign contribution. <laughs> and 
the the Freedom Center heard about this and jumped in, and we said, no, that's a First Amendment issue. You know, you've got a right to you know share a message without having to report it to the government. There's no actual monetary value involved. Why should he be punished? Uh, even even if we assume that you need to report campaign contributions, there's no contribution here. It's just you know letting people know I'm running for office. And um, fortunately, we lost at the at the ethics commission on the first round. We lost at the administrative hearing commission on the second round. And finally, we got in front of a real judge, John Beatham in the Cole County. And just before the new year, he entered the judgment saying. Of course this was incorrect. Of course the MEC does not have this authority. Um, and I just got an email from the MEC's attorney yesterday saying that they do not intend to appeal. They're going to let us take the W on this. So, so after, Way to go. after almost three years of fighting this issue, we finally secured uh, this, this right for our client. And it's going to be helpful for anyone else who wants to run for public office because it's going to discourage the Ethics Commission from using campaign contribution laws offensively, um, you know, to, to make it a political weapon that, that candidates can use against each other, not because there's any legitimate public interest, but just to make the other side's life miserable. So we're, wow. we're very pleased with that outcome. Way to go. Last topic. Congratulations. And that's I mean, that's why we've got you. That's why you're here. Uh, John Deere. I got a minute or so. You want to fix yeah, your own tractor? Um, to, to sum it up, uh, John Deere has for years not just uh, tried to prevent uh, the people that buy their tractors from fixing them themselves. Uh, they've tried to get legislation passed that would require property owners, uh, the, the owners of these vehicles, to take them to the dealers, uh, which is, of course, hugely expensive. It's always better if you can find uh, someone unaffiliated with a dealer to go and, and have your vehicle fixed. Um, it seems, although it is not entirely clear, that John Deere is kind of waving the white flag. The political tide had turned against them. Several states, including New York, were planning to pass laws creating a right to repair for purchasers. And it seems like in order to avoid that, John Deere has reached an agreement um, that would allow owners to fix their vehicles, at least in some circumstances. But uh, we'll have to see if this turns out to be a real benefit or just kind of a, a facade. Time will tell. MoFreedom.org. Dave Rowland, thanks, buddy. Appreciate having you on today. Thank you, Gary. All right. Whatever it is in life that you want, go out and get it. Don't wait for the government to drop it in your lap. You make it happen. Seize the day. Carpe diem. Grandbaby. Honey, I'm coming home.